As we go to open God's word together, let's ask him to bless it to us. Let us pray. Blessed Lord, who has caused Holy Scripture to be written for our learning, we pray that you would grant that we may hear, read, learn, and inwardly digest them, that through the comfort of your holy word we may embrace and ever hold fast the blessed hope of eternal life, which you have given us in our Savior Jesus Christ. Amen. Please be seated. And please turn with me in God's word to Romans chapter 13. Romans chapter 13, and we want to consider together this evening a little bit about the role of the civil magistrate, and whenever we're going to think about those things, Romans 13 always comes to mind, and so we want to read the first uh, seven verses of Romans 13. And let's pay careful attention, for this is God's own word. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval. For he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. For because of this, you also pay taxes. For the authorities are ministers of God attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed to them. Taxes to whom taxes are owed. Revenue to whom revenue is owed. Respect to whom respect is owed. Honor to whom honor is owed. Thus far the reading of God's word. May he bless it to us. So we're moving on. If you're visiting with us, we've been considering a series through the Belgic Confession. We've come to Article 36 that deals with the civil magistrate. So we've moved from the controversial issue of the sacraments to this very non-controversial issue of how the church should relate to the state. Uh, No, of course I say that tongue-in-cheek. These are very difficult uh, things to try to understand and to try to get right. Um, This has been called by some the most difficult and disputed article in the Belgic Confession, uh, trying to think about governments and trying to think about the church's relation to the government, both as the church and as individual members of the church, how are we to relate to the governments that are around us? Um, And part of the difficulty that we face as the people of God is that Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. The church is always instituted by God and endures every generation of the world, endures all the ups and downs, all the governments of this world, but the governments of this world are constantly changing. And how people think about the governments of this world are constantly changing, and how the governments of this world relate to the church. Uh, Those relationships are constantly changing. Uh, When we think back to when the church first first appeared in this world, the New Testament church, uh, what was its relationship to the state? Well, it had no authority under the state. It was, in fact, illegal under the state. The Romans persecuted from time to time the church in different places because it had no authority. Uh, Over time, it gained ascendancy, it gained approval, 
Roman emperors, Constantine declared it you know, legal. He became a Christian himself. Other people became Christians. And we went through this kind of whiplash through several centuries of history where the church had no authority of the state to the point where popes are crowning kings and saying not only do they have authority over the kings, but that the church has authority over all governments in the world. So we go from having no authority in the world to authority over all the world. Um, and people are arguing that. Of course, King Henry VIII didn't like that very much, having popes over him, so he decided he was the head of the church. Um, and so he started saying, I have authority as the head of state over the church. Um, and so you can see how in, now I've run through many centuries of history, right, uh, in just a heartbeat, but we can see how these things change from time to time. Um, some of those changes are for the good, as it comes to the church, some are for the worse. Um, the, the, the king or the queen of England still bears that title, the defender of the faith. They still see it as their technical responsibility to enforce the established religion, um, using the civil sword to punish heretics as criminals. Uh, that happened during the time of the Reformation at the hands of several other monarchs. Um, so we can see how these things relate to each other and how the relationships change over the years. And we live in a country where the relationship between the church and the state is to be one of separation. Uh, that metaphor has changed over time. We used to talk about the wall of separation being necessary to keep the wilderness of the state out of the garden of the church. Um, but I think people have changed the way they use that metaphor, thinking that somehow the church is the wilderness that has to be kept out of the garden of the state. But however people use that metaphor, we know that we live in our time in a country that, that stands for the proposition the government should not establish a religion. The government should leave individuals free to exercise their conscience when it comes to religion without inhibiting the free exercise thereof so that the, the worshiper can worship according to his or her conscience. And so you can see how trying to understand how the church should relate to the state depends a lot about on what state you're talking about um, and can be difficult to do. And so one of the things that we want to do as a baseline is to lay down the, the basics of what God's Word says about the role of the government in the world. Hopefully, as we go through this article, we'll think about various aspects um, of how the church relates to the state and how we as Christians are to relate to the civil government. But tonight, we want to think about the, sort of the basics of government as we confess it and as we see it in the world. Um, now, the basics are just that, right? Basics. You always have to build off the basics to the more complex uh, ideas, but we can't start really until we understand the basics. And so what are the basics that we confess and the basics that we see Paul speaking of when it comes to the civil government in Romans chapter 13? Um, well, we could say that we see here that governments rule by God's good appointment, for God's good purpose, and under God's good king. And that's, I think, the basics of government as we sketch them out, both in the word here and in the article of the Belgian Confession. Governments rule by God's good appointment, for God's good purpose, under God's good king. I think these are the ways we can helpfully think about the government and the basics of government as we see it laid out here. Governments rule by God's good appointment. Uh, governments are first and foremost to see, be seen by God's people as a manifestation of his goodness in the world. That it's the good act of God that institutes governments in the world. 
uh, that it is a sense of a blessing to us. It's part of God's common grace or providential care of this world that he gives us governments. Now, I suspect that if I went around the room and asked, let's give examples of God's goodness in the world, it might take a long time before someone mentioned governments. Um, That's not how we tend to think about governments as being a testimony to God's goodness. I think we have many of us in our minds, maybe especially at present, the failings and flaws of governments, um, how they, they fail us, how they let us down. Um, so maybe we are so often easy, it's an easy target of us to be critical of the government at all times and maybe not to think of it as a blessing. Maybe in the United States we're more prone to think of it as a blessing than in other places uh, where the government is a better kind of government that does protect our rights, that we don't suffer as other people suffer. We should be thankful for our government. But even when the government is, is a relatively good government in the world, it's still filled with many shortcomings many failures that are apparent no matter who's in control of the country. Um, You know, you can read comments that resonate with us made by people who lived many decades ago. Uh, Mark Twain famously said, suppose you were an idiot and suppose you were a member of Congress, but I repeat myself. Right, that, that resonates I mean, you're laughing because you can feel that same way he felt. Now, the members of Congress were way different when he was writing that than they are today, but there's certain things that that carry forward. Uh, We maybe laugh when we think of the late Senator McCain's comment that, you know, Congress usually has about a 10% approval rating, and that's all of our family and friends. Um, That's it. That's the only people that approve of us. Um, So some of those things don't change. We, We can be very cynical and critical of governments, but when we think about them, uh, we should recognize that they really are blessings from God to have. They are appointed by God for our good. They are demonstrations of God's goodness in the world that he does not leave it completely disordered, um, but actually has established governments for our good. Um, and we think of Romans 13 as one that talks clearly about the institution of governments by our God. Um, Daniel could reflect on the goodness of government even as an exile in Babylon who'd been taken captive by a foreign power. He still can say in Daniel 2, 20, 21, blessed be the name of God forever and ever to whom belong wisdom and insight. He changes times and seasons. He removes kings and he sets up kings. Um, he, he took refuge in that reality that God is the one who was in control of the governments of this world. Or think of that important statement that Jesus made before Pilate in John 19, verse 11. You would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given to you from above. You would have no authority at all unless it had been given to you from above. Um, God's Word teaches us to have that sense that the authorities that have been established have been established by God. They have been established by his appointment, by his good appointment to accomplish his good purpose. Governments not only rule by God's appointment, but they rule to accomplish God's good purpose. Um, And what is God's purpose? Why do we need governments in the world? On account of sin. The Belgian Confession is very helpful here. We believe that because of the depravity of the human race, Our good God has ordained kings, princes, 
and civil officers. He wants the world to be governed by laws and policies. Um, you know, what, what is sort of the state of society at its worst as it's described in the Old Testament? Uh, that comes in the book of Judges. And what are we told in the book of Judges? Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. What's interesting is that's not the only commentary on the state of things. The commentary the book of Judges makes over and over again is to say there was no king in Israel and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. There was a relationship between those two things, that everyone did what was right in their own eyes and there was no one to enforce justice, uh, to enforce the laws, um, that sin left unchecked in this world will tend to run amok. It's sin in this world that makes governments necessary. Um, it's sin in this world that makes governments necessary. All human governments are the product of the fall. Uh, we wouldn't need government if there wasn't sin in the world. Um, because of the fall, sin and misery have entered into the world, and sin left unrestrained and unchecked will run amok in the world. Um, and because God does not want sin running amok in the world, he acts in many different ways to restrain it. And one of the ways he acts to restrain it is by establishing human governments. Um, and this is an important thing for us to recognize. Governments exist because there is sin in the world as a mechanism by which God restrains that sin from running amok. Uh, that's how we can see governments as a blessing from our God. Not because kings say, I have the right to reign, as some kings have said, or people have said, we have the right to rule, but to ultimately think of governments coming from the king of kings and the lord of lords as a way of him exercising his authority to restrain the evil that goes on in the world. And it's important for us to think of those things and to recognize that purpose, uh, both as uh, because it has implications for those who are in positions of authority and also for those who are subject to those authorities. And Lord willing, we'll think about that more and more as we go on. Um, but it's important for us to recognize God wants this world ordered. He wants the world ruled by certain laws and policies so that civil governments are to rule by laws and policies following after the example of our God. Right? He can make known the rules and the policies by which he governs the world. We call that his law. Um, he makes it clear to us his, his policy, and that is to be something that we look to as an understanding for how to establish our own laws. Exodus 18.20 says, And you shall warn them about the statues and the laws and make them know the way in which they must walk and what they must do. God is a God of order. Uh, so it shouldn't be surprising to us that he doesn't want a world that's disordered that he wants it ordered. And why does God want this world ordered? Why does he want it governed by certain laws and policies? What is the goal? What is the end? What is the purpose for which God has established these orders? Well, here too, the Belgian Confession is helpful. So that human lawlessness may be restrained and that everything may be conducted in good order among human beings. Uh, that's what Paul says essentially in Romans 13. If you do what is right, you don't need to fear the sword of the government. Uh, you fear the sword when you do what is evil. 
And that that's the purpose for which God has appointed the governments in part to restrain human lawlessness. Uh, because sin is, is sort of like wildfire. Um, it will never be satisfied until it's burned up all the fuel it can get to. Uh, Proverbs say it's like the fire that never says enough. Uh, that, that's the characteristic of fire. Sin is like that. It never says enough. It will run amok if it's unchecked. Uh, that's true in our own lives, we know. Um, John Owen said, when it comes to the personal life of the believer, be killing sin or sin will be killing you. It's, it's a danger uh, of running amok. Jesus, or the Lord said to Cain when he was contemplating murder in his heart, the sin is crouching at your door and desires to have you and you must master it. Say, sin is like that. It, it is something that will run amok. Uh, I, I like how John Owen puts it in this way. Sin aims almost, always at the utmost. Every time it rises up to tempt or entice, might it have its own course, it would go out to the utmost sin in that kind. Every unclean thought or glance would be adultery if it could. Every covetous desire would be oppression. Every thought of unbelief would be atheism. Might it grow to its head. It is like the grave that is never satisfied. Um, I remember a professor of mine, Howell Jones, reminding us as seminarians, sin must not just be confessed, it must be contested. It cannot be allowed to run amok. And this is one of the ways the Lord has instituted so that sin will not run amok in the world. He's established governments to help restrain human lawlessness. Um, And not only to do that, but also to promote and preserve good order. Uh, Sin not only runs amok in all kinds of lawlessness, but it causes disorder and indecency. And God has established governments to stop these things as well. uh, To promote and preserve good order. Uh, Because disorder and indecency are bad for everyone, but they're particularly bad for the work of the church. That's why Paul says we ought to pray for governing authorities. Right? 1 Timothy 2, 1 and 2. First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. Paul recognizes that kings, governments, have to do with our ability to live peaceful lives, to be free from the disorder that would exist in the world. And that's why God has empowered governments to go out and to do this restraining work, uh, to punish the wrongdoer, to restrain human lawlessness, and to promote and preserve the good order. God has given authority to governments and given them means for exercising that authority. The Belgian Confession goes on to point out, for that purpose, he has placed the sword in the hands of the government to punish evil people and to protect the good. As Paul lays it out in Romans 13, there are really two purposes for which the sword exists, to compel obedience from evildoers and to protect the good from evildoers. Um, that's, that's why the sword exists. That's why there is some power. And that sword is a good metaphor. 
as Paul uses it. Um, Because when you saw someone wearing a sword, particularly a Roman soldier wearing a sword, you knew that there was the threat of force there. Um, You know, sort of the the reason when you see a police officer with all the equipment they have, um, it should send us the message they're not someone to be trifled with. Right? They don't bear all that equipment for nothing. Um, And that's the message that the sword is meant to convey. It's an opportunity to show that there is violence there that acts as a deterrent to wicked people. Um, It's it's a measure of the strength. It it represents both the strength to imply if you step out of line, there are going to be repercussions. And it also enables the person to deliver on that threat, uh, to act on that, to carry out even violence when necessary, for judgment. The image of a sword is not intentional. The swords were not used to swat people, right? Swords are used to kill. That's, that's the, the, the power of metaphor that's there. God has given them the sword so that they may compel obedience from evildoers. Um, it's meant to be a warning to all those who would do evil. It's an extension of what God said in Genesis 9, 5, and 6. And for your lifeblood, I will require a reckoning. From every beast, I will require it. And from man, from his fellow man, I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. The sword exists to compel obedience from evildoers, to threaten judgment on those who transgress the law. But it's not just there to punish evildoers, it's there to protect the good from evildoers. Um, And we're thankful for that, that the sword functions not just as a repressive instrument on all of society, but also as a deterrent and an instrument of violence in defense of those who are doing good. Um, When evildoers are abroad, and when evildoers are doing evil things, you like to see the lights of a police car coming. Um, When evildoers are doing evil things um, and you're trying to get out of Afghanistan, you like it when you can get to U.S. Marines who will help you. Right? There's a sense in which we all understand that important role that the civil government has in promoting and protecting the good from those who would do evil. And that's why we're so thankful to have those who protect and serve us as police officers and in the U.S. military and all those people who sacrifice for the sake of their fellow citizens, that they might be protected. That's a function of the government. We should be thankful to God that he has instituted that sort of thing. Because whenever we see places in the world that don't enjoy the protections we enjoy, and when we witness the lawlessness that goes on when there is no proper government in place, we can recognize how blessed we are to live in the kind of place we live. We recognize clearly what a blessing that is to have from our God. Um, But that is what the purpose of government is, to fulfill that function. Now, some people have said, you know, said they look at Romans 13 and they look at what the Belgian Confession says, you know, that kind of government sounds great, and if we had it, I would have no problem with it. But I'm afraid Paul is describing some kind of pie-in-the-sky ideal situation, not the situation that I see with the government. 
If we had a government like that, I would have no problem with it. But I don't see a government like that. Um, even a good government, like we've said, in our country that we enjoy falls short in many ways. Right? We can look and see that the evil of abortion is not being restrained by the government, that indecency is promoted by our laws that protect and encourage behavior that's forbidden in God's word. There are too many criminals that escape justice and innocent citizens who are subjected to abuses of power, either privately or by the government. Uh, there are citizens and allies who are left at the mercy of hostile foreign powers or hostile powers around our corner. The government is hardly perfect. And some people, that's led some people to say, if, if I had a government like that, Romans 13 government, I could, I could honor it. But they take that last line not sort of as Paul intends it. You know, pay, every, pay to everyone what's owed, taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed. Um, and we say, you know, if I could respect them, I'd respect them. If I could honor them, I'd honor them. But I don't think I can. That's how some people can come to this word. But we have to remember that, again, our, our main thesis, our main idea is that governments exist in the world because of sin, because the world is not in an ideal situation. You know, in a, you know, we sometimes use that phrase, right, in an ideal world. In an ideal world, you wouldn't need governments at all. The ideal world will come when Christ comes and is king overall. That will be all the government the world needs. But Paul is not describing an ideal world. He's describing a real world in which the Romans lived, understanding that the government he's talking about is an imperfect government that doesn't do what governments are supposed to do. And it seems important for us to recognize that the clarity with which people see governments being instituted by God is when they see beyond the government to the God who gives them to recognize the order of the world that exists. Right? When Daniel is celebrating that God takes down kings and raises up kings, he's talking about a world in which the sons of David have been put down by Babylon as king and where Nebuchadnezzar has been raised up as the one who destroyed Jerusalem and the temple. Right? It's not, that's not an easy confession for Daniel to make in Daniel chapter 2. We know who was in charge when Paul is writing to Roman Christians. We know who was in charge in Rome at the time. It was Nero, that emperor who is so well known for his persecution of Christians. Um, when Jesus told him he would have no authority unless it had been given him from above, Jesus was talking to a judge who was a crook, who was a dishonest man, who took someone and said, I see nothing wrong with this person at all, He's innocent, he's not guilty of anything you've done, and then sentenced him to death by crucifixion. Right? These are not perfect governments. If these laws only applied to perfect governments, they would mean nothing at all to God's people. Paul knows that he's not talking about perfect governments. But he's saying they are nevertheless established by God to be ministers of His and it's amazing the, the way Paul continues to talk about them, to use all this language of their institution by God for the purposes for which God has given them. Um, we can just go through this, this text over and over again and see all the times he talks about them, 
authority from God, instituted by God, what God has appointed, right? Over and over again, this is how Paul is willing to talk of the government. And what he's trying to do is hold up that reality that the world would be in a worse situation if there was no one ever governing what goes on in the world. If there were no entities to restrain sin, if everyone was doing what was right in their own eyes and there was no king, uh, the world would be in a worse situation. It's the calling of Christians as much as they can to live in harmony with that government. I think it also is a calling then for us not to ever put ultimate hope in governments. You know, I think that's a danger that we all face in this world of saying, you know, if this government could just be replaced by another government, then everything would be fine. You know, it's, it's, been, it's been popularized recently to always, to now make bumper stickers, not just for campaigns, but after the campaign is over, you get a bumper sticker that says, don't blame me, I voted for the person that lost, right? And it, always the implication is if there had been another government, if, just, if we could just tweak things a little bit more, then we could have the kind of place that would really deliver in this world. And I think what God constantly wants to remind us of is that although God's, God has given these governments by His good appointment, for His good purpose, to restrain sin, to promote what's good, um, that these governments still are not the ultimate hope that we should have in this world. We, we know that we need to be reminded of that because God's Word has to tell us that. We sang Psalm 46 because it contains those important verses 3 and 4. Put not your trust in princes, in a son of man in whom there is no salvation. When his breath departs, he returns to the earth on that very day, his plans perish. I'm not at all trying to suggest it's not important who's in the government and that God's people should take no notice or no action about who's in the government. But there is a danger of making those things that are not ultimate, ultimate. Of saying if we just could have this man or this woman or this policy or this platform or this party, then things would be in a right state. But you know, all those people will eventually go the way of all the earth. They'll perish, and their plans will perish. They're not fit people to put their trust in. Um, and what, what does God's Word want to remind us? It reminds us of what we sang in Psalm 118, verse 9. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in princes. Governments are, not, are one of the ways that God does exercise the restraint of sin in this world. They're not the exclusive way that he works. They're not even the strongest way that he works. What is the hope of God's people? It's that governments rule under God's good king. That God's people never need to be in a situation where they say, there is no king. There is no king. Uh, there is a king. Even our Lord Jesus Christ, who reigns at the right hand of his Father, he has been given all authority in heaven and on earth. And he is ruling and reigning. He is governing the world. That's why Psalm 146 says, 
Don't put your trust in princes, in sons of men who will die, and when they die, their plans will perish from the earth, who can't save you. Then immediately the psalm points us where we should put our trust. It says, blessed is he whose help is the God of Jacob, whose hope is in the Lord his God, who made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, who keeps faith forever, who executes justice for the oppressed, who gives food to the hungry. The Lord sets the prisoners free. The Lord opens the eyes of the blind. The Lord lifts up those who are bowed down. The Lord loves the righteous. The Lord watches over the sojourners. He upholds the widow and the fatherless, but the way of the wicked he brings to ruin. The Lord will reign forever. Your God, O Zion, to all generations. Praise the Lord. Who's the psalmist talking about? Who is that king? It's our Lord Jesus Christ. He is the one who ultimately will be sure, make sure that all evil is restrained. Who will hunt it out of the world until he finds none of it. Who protects those who are in the right. And he's not weak like men who perish with their plans. He is the God who made the heavens and the earth, the sea that all is in them. The power is there. And the attention to justice is there. Um, who does all things well. Who is a God who ensures fairness. Our hope is not in human governments to do these things. At best, they're imperfect institutions for an imperfect world. We're thankful for them, but we don't look to them for ultimate hope. And if we do, we've gone badly wrong as the people of God. We recognize that there is a king who reigns on high, who has power and who acts with justice and who has an eye on the oppressed where no injustice will escape his notice. Right? That's the hope of the psalmist in Psalm 56, 6 through 9. They stir up strife, they lurk, they watch my steps as they have waited for my life. For their crime will they escape? In wrath cast down the peoples, O God. You have kept count of my tossings, put my tears in your bottle. Are they not in your book? Then my enemies will turn back in the day when I call. This I know, that God is for me. What is the hope of, of the good in the world, those who've been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb? That God is for us. That no injustice escapes his notice. That he is keeping account of all of it. And that one day his justice will come. He's promised us that. In Revelation 22, 12 through 13. Behold, I am coming soon, bringing my recompense with me to repay each one for what he has done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. I'm bringing my recompense. I'm going to even the scales of justice in this world so that there will only be justice and righteousness left. And so in God's goodness as the king, he's given us governments to restrain evil and to promote decency and order. 
This is a testimony to part of his care for us in this world for which we should be thankful. But it's not our ultimate hope. Our ultimate hope is that there is a king who reigns on the throne, who does all things well, and who's coming soon. That's the hope of God's people. So may we thank God for the government that we are given, for the restraint of sin that is going on in the world, and may we look forward to that day when Jesus will come and put all wickedness out of the world and usher in his kingdom in which righteousness dwells, a new heaven and a new earth where he reigns free. May he come quickly. Amen. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, how thankful we are for Christ our King. We confess, Lord, that we too often are ungrateful for the governments that we have been given, but we pray, Lord, that we would be more grateful for the wickedness that we see restrained in the world, how the government is there to compel obedience from the wrongdoer and also there to protect the good from those who would do evil. We pray that you would be with all of those who protect and serve, particularly in our country, but around the world. We pray particularly for our our law enforcement and first responders as they do uh, their work at home protecting us. And we pray also for um, our military men and women around the world who protect our interests abroad. We pray that you would be with them, particularly those who know your name and who call upon Christ as Savior. We pray that you would watch over them and keep them safe as they are in harm's way. So help us to be thankful for the governments that you have given to us when they do what's, what's right and good. And help us always to be thankful that there is a king who reigns eternal, or even our Lord Jesus Christ. We pray that he would come quickly, but that until he comes, that he would be our hope. And hear us, we pray in his name. Amen.